I mean, this is like a cataclysmic environment. And instead of people pointing fun at others who are going through hell, similar to mine, or are suffering, you know, you should not be betting or hoping that the end of the world takes place. But we all have to hope that this carnage in the bond market stops soon, right? Because if it doesn't, I don't see how the system can survive with higher interest expense, all this debt, and then possibly a recession. You're talking about an explosion of deficit, an explosion of debt. People are sleepwalking into a crash like this, and a crash that's more than just a crash in stocks, a crash in the system. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like and we want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. So please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Harry Krishnan. Thanks very much, Niels, for the introduction. My guest today is Michael Gayed, a portfolio manager at Toroso Investments, a publisher of the Lead Lag Report and Twitter legend. So it's very exciting to have you on today, Michael. Uh, I w- there are no legends, only cycles. Uh, as a variation of one of the things I say, there are, no, uh, there, there are no gurus, only cycles. I appreciate that kind intro. Well, I hear you. Uh, anyway, why don't we start with your background? Uh, I know that you, have, you come from a finance-oriented family and that you got, in, you got interested in the business pretty early, but maybe you can dive a little deeper into that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So the um, kind of grew up in the business. So uh, my father uh, was an immigrant, came from Egypt to the US, uh, didn't know the culture, didn't know the language, was one of those stories where, you know, he was as poor as poor could get, owed money to his sister to just try to make some kind of a life in the US. Uh, ended up working at uh, IBM had an engineering background, got his MBA, and was uh, fell in love with the stock market. And I say that because a lot of my journey in this business of investing is an extension of my father's own career path to some extent. So he ended up working with Bob Farrell uh, in the late 1980s, who was a well-known technician at Merrill Lynch at the time. Uh, ventured out on his own to start an investment advisory firm in 1991. Ended up launching a hedge fund, having notable clients like Stanley Druckenmiller in that hedge fund. And you know, I pretty much grew up seeing uh, his entrepreneurial spirit, seeing his love and knowledge for markets. And just by the, the process of osmosis, uh, you know, got to understand market dynamics as well. Uh, after graduating uh, NYU, joined the family business, you know, was ever a Massive success as a company, but you know, had some some good stable clients. Uh, in 2008, I was hit with multiple uh, extremes at once, personally and professionally. Uh, my father had passed a couple of days before Thanksgiving. Of course, Lehman Brothers took place. Uh, the entire great financial crisis was unfolding. Uh, <laughs> it was also the same year I got the CFA charter. Um, 
Not that any of that mattered because the entire world was falling apart. So between the personal pain of the loss of my father and then the professional pain, obviously, of losing the family business and losing some of my identity as a result, I had to think about what to do, right? So I um, debated whether to get an MBA. Same day I got accepted into Cornell. I got a job offer at a family office, did that for about a year, managing kind of a pop, prop trade portfolio for them uh, back and forth from the U.S. to Geneva. And uh, left eventually wanting to do more than just have one client, started with an advisory firm, and really was just hungry to try to build a name. So started writing, got published by the likes of Mark Faber of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report, Barry Ritholtz of The Big Picture, and several others. So fortunately, was able to kind of snowball some degree of credibility as an unknown uh, individual at a much younger age, which you know led me to where I am today. Yeah, I mean, I've listened to some of your other interviews, and in one of them, you talk about how you had to reinvent yourself in 2009, and that you tested how you tested a whole slew of different systematic strategies. Uh, what did you find worked, and what did you find didn't work? And did you learn more lessons about sizing of strategies and things like that, portfolio things, or more about specific signals that you could deploy in various contexts? Okay, so there's a couple of things there to unpack. So one is, it's important to define what work means, right? So I always go back to this point that when you think about any kind of strategy or signal, as long as the fundamental research and causation is sound, there will be plenty of times where it's quote unquote not working. In other words, where it's having a dislocation, it's not operating, right? So I've made this point that if you can create a strategy which works 40 to 50% of the time, that's a home run. Right? Because the reality is there's a large degree of randomness in markets, and there are plenty of cycles that don't favor you know particular anomalies, particular strategies. So there's that way of thinking about what works and what doesn't. But then the other part of that is the reality that most things don't work, period, independent of cycle, that it's more attributable to randomness and luck. And that's important because as I was trying to survive following my father's passing and the closure of the family business, you know, looking for a job is a full-time job let alone in the midst of the financial crisis. So I basically created a whole bunch of automated, back-tested uh, strategies for my own capital, uh, long, short, you know, rotation, all this stuff. And believe me when I say I was an animal, I was reading white paper after white paper after white paper, looking at different anomalies because I had to survive. I was testing every possible thing I could possibly test in TradeStation using easy language and across multiple stocks, multiple uh, different investment opportunities. And it was that process that led me to uh, two major realizations. One, that most things don't have predictive power. Most things that you hear about in the media that people will refer to as to reasons for why markets do what they do, it's largely just randomness. And that two, the things that do work do tend to have the same commonality, which is that they the leading indicators tend to be leading because they tell you something about changes in the, de the demand for money, changes in interest rates, which led to the research around the utility sector as a leading indicator, treasuries, ultimately lumber to gold as well. All of those relationships, which I've documented that won these different awards going back to 2014, they all basically document the same idea that if you can get a sense of where uh, interest rates are likely to change or and how that behavior is altering and notice that before equities do, you can position accordingly um, and hopefully, in quote unquote, you know, your strategy will work over prolonged periods of time. But a lot of it was a lot of iteration uh, for me and testing everything possible. And I have to tell you, it's, um, this, is always, this is always a challenge when it comes to Twitter, who when I see people that will counter my approach, which is not working this year, is clearly in a cycle that's not working. And they say things which make no sense. And I, it's not because I'm, I'm pushing. They, they, I think they're not, they're not making sense because it's I'm right and they're wrong. No, it's because I've actually tested a lot of the stuff because I had to. Well, you, you raise a couple of very interesting points. And I think a lot of the audience here are familiar with trend following. And trend following goes through long periods of middling performance, and then it really hits the ball out of the park at, at specific times, often when you need it. And one of the reasons I 
would guess that trend following is attractive, at least conceptually, is it doesn't work all the time. If it did, it would be arbitraged out. The fact that it does have a cyclical loading is actually somewhat attractive in terms of being able to run it over the long term. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. It's like you need to have periods where an indicator or approach doesn't work for it to work in the long term because to your very point, it gets arbitraged away. I always go back to this example of let's say you create some strategy which is always working, no false signals. You're printing more money than the Federal Reserve because you identified some anomaly that nobody else has has identified. Well, what's the next natural step? Let me create a a public fund around that. Let me raise assets to take advantage of that can't lose strategy. So then you launch a fund based on that because you obviously you can clearly get wealthier faster with a strategy with other people's money than just your own, just just factually. So okay, now that funds out, that anomaly, you're still printing money. You 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 can't lose. And what's the natural response by investors to that can't lose strategy? Let me chase it. Let me put money into it. So what goes? What happens to the anomaly? It goes away. It gets arbitraged because now there's there's so many dollars in there. You need to have doubt that an anomaly will persist for the anomaly to persist, which is really hard for people, I think, to get their minds around because in a world that's increasingly short term, people think that if you are not performing in the here and now, it's quote unquote not working. But again, I go back to there are going to be plenty of cycles that create the doubt where it's not working which suddenly lends, lends itself to now the approach which everyone's abandoning to suddenly work again. At least that's my hope, certainly, with my own strategies this year. Yeah, I mean, buying the dip is a classic case that people talk about. Until this year, buying the dip was the unbe- was an unbeatable strategy. The problem is it's short volatility in disguise. So buying ah, the dip, okay. anything. That's a good point. Yes. No, no, so you're actually hitting on something which is important. Even trend following is short volatility. So th- this is you're hitting on something which is, and it's not based on my opinion. It's just I frame this in a different way. I think that most people frame it because I've done the research and I, I know I keep going back to path versus prediction. The idea that you know, a moving average, for example, tells you about trend is, in my opinion, not true. It doesn't tell you the idea the 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 narrative around an uptrend or downtrend actually is not valid. And I say that because if you were to do a simple back test where you're above a 200-day moving average, you buy stocks. You're below the 200-day moving average, you sell stocks. The problem with that trend-following approach is that you actually underperform buy and hold. Why? Because of false signals. So it actually doesn't tell you so much about trend. What it does tell you about the moving average is more about volatility. So usually, for example, when you're above a 200-day moving average or 50-day moving average, you tend to see more streaks, meaning more consecutive updates in the stock market or in other investments. You tend to have lower average volatility than when you're below a moving average when you tend to have higher average volatility. So I always go back to the way people frame things even in terms of trend following. To me, it's not about the trend, which is, I know not a very, it's a strange thing to say. It's really ultimately about volatility dynamics changing. That's where a lot of these strategies get into trouble when you're in years like this year where there's a lot of volatility and you get whipsawed in what looks like a downtrend that then ends up being an uptrend that then ends up being a downtrend. And that's just the nature of a higher volatility regimes. Now, you talk about risk on and risk off, and then you mentioned this longer term trend indicator for the S&P. Why wouldn't you use volatility directly? Why wouldn't you say, well, if vol is low, I'm betting that it will stay low? at least odds are, so I'll load into risky assets, high yield, credit, levered equities, and so on. And when it pops, I'll get out. Why use the S&P as a trend, or the S&P's trend, instead of going directly into realized vol? So this is there's a lot of interesting aspects to this. So one is, and, and so this won the 2020 Founders Award, which looked at VIX levels. And uh, the the interesting thing about the research behind that paper that looked at the VIX and actively managing sector allocations is that when you're in low volatility regimes, you actually want defensive sectors. You want the utilities of the world, the staples of the world, the healthcare of the world when you're in very low volatility regimes. When you're in very high volatility regimes, you actually want the opposite. You want technology. You want the aggressive things. And one of the things that show is, is borne out in that research is it's effectively a mean reversion idea. When you're in low volatility regimes, you don't know when the volatility is going to spike. So you've got to be exposed to low vol in advance of that spike, in advance of the tail event, right? Low vol is the precursor to high vol. When you're in high vol, you're probably already 
in one of those throw the baby out with the bathwater type of moments, which means you want to go into the most aggressive sectors. Yeah, that's super interesting. And one reason I it sort of touches upon the point that I a point that I've been thinking about, which is that these minimum variance portfolios were super popular in the 2010s. Basically, they had not only lower risk but higher realized returns than higher risk ones. But this was all a low vol environment, so it was quite regime dependent. And maybe you're doing something that's a little bit deeper in terms of not uh, loading too much on realized risk. That's right. And I also think that, you know, like a lot of hedge funds will use the VIX, for example, as a trigger for when to lower their gross exposure or lower their net exposure. The, the, I always view the VIX and volatility as the mile marker that you crash your car. From from my vantage point, you have to identify the conditions that make it more likely that you crash your car, right? So what's the weather? So in the case of the papers, with the exception of the VIX paper I just referenced, which is more reactive to VIX levels and then how you allocate from a sector perspective, what the studies show is that usually when utilities are outperforming the stock market, that tends to be the condition under which higher volatility is likely to uh, take place. Usually when lumber to gold is weak, that's the condition under which higher volatility is likely to take place. Usually when long-duration treasuries are performing intermediate, usually, again, that's the condition where you tend to see, you know, tail events, right? So, but I, identifying conditions is different than identifying the mile marker, right? And I always go back to this point. This is a good example this year. You can be, um, you can be right identifying the condition, but maybe your brakes stopped working, right? And we, in that case, I'm really talking about treasuries. You can also be, uh, you can avoid a crash in a um, when it's hailing outside. You can also have a crash when it's sunny outside. The key thing is having multiple roll of the die, and this is where why it's so challenging in this business, especially when you're you know running strategies and other people's money. People fall for the small sample, the single roll of the die. When you're doing research and you're trying to create a strategy, you have to look across multiple cycles and larger data sets, which have a very different time frame than the underlying money you're investing that capital with or that 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 strategy with. Well, when you go risk on, risk off, if you use that paradigm, you need to have a notion of what a safe asset is. And treasuries have historically been quite safe. I think you've done a lot of research on this. This year, they've gone down with everything else. It's been an everything sell-off. What's your view on the use of treasuries as a defensive play looking forward in time? If things get worse, do you think treasuries will rally? Do you, uh, are you confident that that's, your, that that's a reasonable flight to quality asset in, in, on, on a forward-looking basis? Okay, so, so the, the, this is actually a really important part of the conversation because I see on Twitter people say to me, it looks like you forgot to go risk off. And the question is how you define risk off. Okay, so if you think about what's worked in 2022 – you can say that the two things that worked unequivocally were cash, because everything else has been sucking wind in a correlated fashion. And the only thing, the only other thing that's really worked is shorting outright. Okay, so the, those two expressions of risk off worked unequivocally this year. Now here's the problem: if you were to, to do any kind of a back test, where your expression of playing defense, or your expression of being risk off, is to go cash or is to short, it doesn't work. Okay, why does it not work from a backtest perspective over multiple cycles, including in bear markets? Because it's when you create a strategy, you have to always be mindful of how the false signals interact with your opportunity set. False signal meaning you follow some signal, utilities, lumber to gold, moving average, whatever it is, tells you to play risk off, to be defensive. Okay, the problem with cash is that if your signal is wrong, you play defense and the market goes higher. The problem with cash is you don't have a chance at compounding. It doesn't move, right? So you miss out on the upside. The problem with shorting is that you actually lose money if you're wrong as the market goes higher, right? It's completely inverse. The reason why historically treasuries followed by low beta sectors like utilities, staples, and out there, the reason why they are better ways of playing risk off historically is because they independently allow you to be wrong in your signal but still make money. So if you're wrong and the market goes higher playing defense – Okay, usually, okay, treasuries have a chance at making money. I say usually because obviously this year has not, there's been no chance the way treasuries are paid, but at least you have a chance to compound with treasuries being wrong in your signal. If you're in low beta sectors like utilities, which actually did work this year, you can be wrong playing defense but still make money because you're still equities, you're still beta. 
right? So the definition of risk off is what I think most people really don't fully get. And it's, it's funny because it's like people say, you know, risk on, risk off. Well, isn't that just market timing? Listen, I agree with all the studies that show that market timing doesn't work. Okay, but the problem is why do the studies show market timing doesn't work? Because what you're timing is cash against the risk asset, which again, doesn't work when there's false signals, right? So going back to your question, okay, so now let's talk about how this year has played out and the, the hell I keep saying on Twitter and in all my media appearances, the hell, it's not an opinion. This is purely looking at the numbers. Usually, usually when you're in an extreme peer, in an extreme sequence of volatility, which coincides with big drawdowns in stocks, usually treasuries are the quote-unquote safe haven asset, meaning either money will fall, or even if treasuries lose money, they don't lose anywhere near as much money as equities in that moment of time, in that sequence. Now, this is also important because a lot of people confuse endpoint with how you get there. So you, one thing is to say that stocks and bonds would both lose money. Another thing is to say stocks and treasuries would both, would both lose money in a correlated fashion in an extremely volatile period. They're two totally different dynamics, right? In the 70s, you had plenty of junctures where stocks went down hard. And in that moment in time, if your signal was right, treasuries were still a much better way of playing defense, except this year, right? Which is what makes this environment so challenging. Now, to the point of, you know, will the dynamic return? Because, you know, as I've noted, as we speak, treasuries have lost more money than equities, I mean, the correlation of the equity drawdown to the treasury drawdown is not only unprecedented, but even on a standalone basis, the number of weeks that treasuries have lost money, longest period in history in terms of percentage of the year. Uh, same thing with the stock market, second only to 1931, the most number of down weeks uh, in history year to date, uh, going back to 1931. You've got a really nasty interaction and sequence in equities and treasuries in risk on risk off, which is... Exactly why my funds, Atax, Roro, and Jojo all look horrible because they all rely on treasuries as the risk off play and treasuries as the risk off play when the signal is wrong, meaning you're defensive and the market goes higher. This is what's so maddening about this. And this is what it's so hard to communicate, especially on social media. It, the signals that I use in my Roro ETF, Lumber to Gold, and my Jojo and Atax uh, funds, utilities, they've been right. In other words, Pretty much the bulk of 2022, utilities have been outperforming. That's risk off. Pretty much the bulk of 2022, lumber to gold has been weak. That's risk off. It's been treasuries that have not behaved as the risk off play. It actually ended up being the source of, of all the risk. So I hope that the dynamic returns where treasuries act as the counter asset, as the diversifier, because as I keep saying, this is now deeper than the drawdown and suffering from a rules-based perspective I'm going through with my funds. If the system keeps uh, leveraging higher against higher interest expense, you have more to worry about than the value of your portfolio. You have to almost bet that risk on risk off dynamics return because if it doesn't, we're all in a lot of trouble. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of things that don't line up in my head. One thing is that um, the dollar has been incredibly strong, which would usually indicate tight conditions overseas. Uh, and yet uh, treasuries have sold off and credit spreads, yes, they've widened, but they haven't blown out. So it, it, we have a very mixed picture in terms of uh, risk at this point. And, and I always go back to that example of if you looked at the AAA bond ETF for so-called conservative investors, AGG, BND, one of those types of ETFs, ex-dividend, the price of that bond ETF, first of all, you're back to 2008 levels now, but it's way below the COVID crash levels of 2020 during that, that horrible dislocation. If you look at the junk debt side, which is supposed to be for aggressive bond investors, the price ex-dividend of HYG is above still the 2020 COVID crash credit spread blowout. So that which is safe ended up being wildly risky. I mean, you're talking about something which is remarkable. Now, you can argue that that was all to be expected. Okay, so treasuries you know, were very overvalued. The Fed should never have done zero interest rate policy. I don't disagree with any of that. But I think what people are forgetting in this narrative that treasuries are riskier than everything else is that the entire system is based on the baseline of treasuries. So how can it be that treasuries are riskier than everything else when it's the risk-free rate, when the government owns our assets through taxation, and if the credit quality of the government gets questioned because of the speed with which interest uh, rates are rising, makes it hard for them to fund their, their liabilities, 
doesn't that by definition mean that everything else is riskier? And, and it's funny because that's that's really what happened in 2011. If you remember in 2011, when S and P downgraded uh, the U.S. government's credit quality from AAA to AA plus, oddly enough, Treasuries rallied at price, yields collapsed on the long end, stocks collapsed at the same time. Well, how could that be the case if the credit quality of the U.S. government is less? You would think that Treasuries would do worse. No, because the entire system is predicated on the baseline of government rates. Yeah, it's been a weird time where um, high yield may have outperformed for two reasons in the U.S. One is that it has a shorter duration simply because there's a credit spread and also because there are lots of energies uh, in the high yield complex. So it may not be giving an accurate picture of risk, the price of risk now. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and that has to do with, to your point, sort of sector composition as far as credit spread movement. But I mean, last I checked, oil has broken pretty hard, right? And this is the other thing too. It's like, you know, if you have spiking interest rates, well, as I joked, right? It's like the people that, same people that don't focus on the bond market complain about their rising credit card interests. So demand has to crater as this yield spike suddenly becomes a realization for the average consumer. So, I mean, I, I'm fairly sure that's part of the reason, aside from the SPR, obviously, uh, that's probably why oil has also sold off. It's in, that's that's why usually in recessions you see oil be the last to sort of, you know, the last domino before like a real capitulation event in equities. Now, backing up slightly, um, uh, you talk, you've talked a lot about lumber versus gold or lumber trend versus gold. I did read that excellent white paper that you wrote that won, won the award. Why lumber instead of copper? People usually talk about copper as a leading indicator of economic growth. What did you find in lumber uh, that's special? So copper does work, but not work does not work as much as lumber. And I think it's also it's partially because not too many people focus on lumber. So it, it's ultimately about what commodity um, tells you the most about potential credit contraction or expansion. So if you think about homes, right? I always go back to this point. People will tweet at me saying, "I don't understand why you focus on lumber while they're tweeting from their house." Right? The average. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The average home has 16,000 board feet of lumber. And because there's, you know, there's this long tail of construction and there's a high correlation of housing starts to lumber prices, it makes sense that lumber is your is your tell for housing activity, housing construction, housing demand picking up. Okay, well, we know when housing demand picks up, there's credit expansion, right? Because people use their homes as ATMs, right? So you're, you're actually sure. creating a lot of liquidity from that. You don't have the same dynamic when it comes to copper because copper is using everything, including on the industrial side, where you don't have the same dynamics of credit contraction as a result of the asset, right? So it's not that it doesn't work copper. It's just that from my own studies, lumber is a bigger tell on liquidity conditions changing through the mechanism of home values more so than you know copper, which goes into also you know, buildings and non-home related um, uh, economic activity. Got it. So you use it as an indicator, but you wouldn't trade it directly. It's a pretty small market in any case. Right. Exactly right. It's, it's funny because I, I do these CFA chapter presentations um, and sometimes they think I'm talking about buying lumber. It's like I'm not – it's not about buying lumber. It's, the, the, this is purely about lumber as a signal as it relates to housing. Now, this is what's also so maddening about this environment. Lumber has been weak all year and only now you're starting to see housing rollover. Okay, so that makes sense, right? Lumber's seen and sought first, and you know, it's been a pretty nasty uh, period of weakness in lumber prices. But what usually happens when lumber is weak? Bond yields on the long end start to fall. Okay, why? Because it would suggest that if housing is going to be weak, well, then mortgage rates are too expensive. So you have to low, so yields have to lower lower on the on the thirty year treasury side and the mortgage side. Which is, well, again, why treasuries tend to be a better risk-off play. There's a causation there, going back to the earlier point of the discussion. So in this case, it's the exact opposite, right? You've got lumber collapsing and yield spiking. And you can argue that the yield spike is what's causing the housing slowdown. Yeah, sure. But that only partially explains you know, the dislocation that's happening in the bond market. It's not purely because of that. So um, even in the 70s, when lumber was weak relative to gold, you would have done just fine rotating to treasuries in that moment of time 
because again, it played as a risk off assets just hasn't this year. So lumber is, I think sending a pretty big warning sign that um, this housing deceleration is very early, right? And if it's very early, that probably means the equity bear market is still early. Yep. Very, very interesting. Um, back to the yield curve. Um, a lot of people use standard metrics like the 10-year, two-year spread or the 10-year, three-month spread as either a recession indicator or as a marker of the price of risk. Um, is that still valid in the age of significant central bank intervention at the short end, at least? So you're, you're, you're hitting on exactly the reason why the 2014 paper, um, an intermarket approach to tactical risk rotation, looked at the longer end of the yield curve, 30-year and 10-year, right? So the idea there is that if the 30-year is outperforming the 10-year on a month-over-month basis, that tends to also precede higher volatility. If it's underperforming, risk on, lower volatility. Um, the argument there is that you want to go, you want to try to see what the yield curve is doing with less Fed intervention, right? The Fed controls, to your point, the short end much more so than the long end, even debatable if they really do control the long end uh, anyway. So so from that perspective, the idea on the paper, which it's one of the signals that goes into my mutual fund for why to go risk off, is that you want to get a pure signal. You want to go where the Fed is not as active, right? So I do think that there is truth to the idea that the, the efficacy of the way inversions happen because of Fed intervention is probably not as strong as it used to be. I don't believe that's necessarily the case when it comes to the long end. Uh, but again, I could be wrong because in this kind of environment, nothing is really applying to history books. Understood. And uh, I've heard you mention Martin Pring's work, I think, in a previous podcast. And he, I read one of his books many years ago, and I liked it, which basically said that uh, there's a sequence of moves across asset classes. So first, rates and, and currencies move, then equity indices, then physical commodities, and finally, the real economy gets affected, and then the cycle reverses. Is that cycle, I mean, I tested that over the years, and it seemed to break down in the mid-2010s when central bank interventions were more common. Does that Did it ever work, according to you? Does it still work? How would you change it? So there's there's a there's a there's a bigger embedded um, issue there. So you're saying mid 2010s. I'd argue that what really broke a lot of historical relationships actually goes to 2013. And I've I've written about this, was writing about it back then. And it was one of those periods where it was frustrating to me because I was running this risk on risk off mutual fund I launched in 2012, and I started seeing suddenly these dynamics that I was testing and you know that I could rely on suddenly look different. QE3, quantitative easing 3, is where a lot of these cycles suddenly stopped working in the way historically a sequence would suggest it should have. Because when quantitative easing 3 took place, the world started changing its viewpoint around rates uh, in terms of lower rates being good for the market and the economy as opposed to higher rates being reflective of, of better demand for the market. So if you were to look at the relationship pre-2013, of inflation expectations to equities, you would see pretty much a one-for-one -one relationship. In other words, if inflation expectations were rising, stocks would rise. If inflation expectations were falling, stocks would fall. Then there started being this, this massive divergence where inflation expectations dropping was actually bullish. Stocks rallied as a result. The FANG started being the only story, and that's when small caps started underperforming. That's also when emerging markets started going sideways in a, in a prolonged way. So you're, you're hitting on something which is interesting, and it even goes back to this point about Fed intervention. QE1, QE2, TARP, all this stuff, twist. Um, you still had that historical cycle behavior because inflation expectations correlated to equity movement. When QE3 took place, everything changed. And I think it's one of the stories which is not really fully understood or appreciated because it's almost like a structural break took place that made all of the historical relationships not as powerful as they once were. Yep, absolutely. Uh, can you just, for the audience's sake, explain why you think uh, that higher rates are actually um, indicative of decent economic activity in some in some sense? You know, why they might be more in indicative of an active credit market. 
Right. I mean, at the core, it's very simple, right? If interest rates are the cost of money, the cost of money is a function of supply and demand. So if demand for borrowing is picking up, that means that interest rates should be rising, right? Because there's demand for money. So there's more bidders for that capital. That's what you'd want to see in a healthy environment, right? And I think this is also a nuance, right? Because people confuse um, shifts in interest rates, which are largely due to efficiency relative to, you know, demand-driven changes in interest rates. So you've been in a interest rate um, cycle bond bull market because you've had a lot of efficiencies, so the yield curve shifted more left. As demand itself picks up in bull markets, the shorter end and longer end will respond in different ways than just the shift of the yield curve. What happens is, well, I think, and this is where a lot of the distortions really started taking place, the Fed started viewing um, the demand side as something that it could control by making it purely about supply to the point where you didn't have a functioning signal where interest rates no longer told you about the demand for money because it was being swelled by you know, the printer, right? And, and that's why I think so, so from that perspective, yes, I do think the Fed broke their own indicators for what the economy is likely to do because they overdid it with QE3. The market, we never needed to have another round of quantitative easing, right? You can argue two was on the bubble. Three was really the, in my opinion, the death knell for all this, all these dynamics. So now maybe this, what we're seeing this year is the unwind of, of every insane measure the Fed really did post 2013. And you can make an argument that's actually a good thing because that means markets normalize longer term. You can also make an argument that that's a very bad thing because I keep going back to this point that it's like I joked about this in a tweet earlier. Yeah, at some point, the Fed's going to have to restart QE to simply pay for the interest expense of higher rates on $30 trillion of government debt. Yeah. I mean, there's something very interesting about what you've said here, and I, I didn't realize it for many years, which is that as soon as you, you realize that the Fed doesn't really control the long end of the yield curve. High yield should be indicative of good health because it means that there's a lot of demand for borrowing for longer term projects. And so the banking sector can justify higher yields. Would you why steepening is bullish historically? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. In, in terms of the sequencing, though, uh, I, I agree that it's broken down. But is this one of those things that sort of reflects back to what you do where it may come back or is it just something which has been permanently altered by the the uh, recent events uh, in central bank land? So I certainly hope so. So this is what it, it's like. You know, I keep using that line. Your ability to stick to a strategy matters more than the strategy itself. I always go back to that line. Right, and, I'll, and then I'll have somebody uh, snarky say, that's the worst piece of advice you've ever given. Look at how poorly you've done your funds. It's like, have you ever done anything in your life that didn't require discipline? You have to be able to stick to an approach, right? And implicit in that idea of sticking to an approach is the idea that there are cycles where the approach doesn't work. Going back to the earlier discussion around 40, 50% of the time it works, the rest it doesn't, right? But you don't know if it's going to come back, which the, 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 the harsh reality is I don't know just like everybody else. I hope it will because I believe that there's still cause and effect. And I hope it will because I'm biased because it costs a lot of money to launch funds, to create this, these rules-based public vehicles, or ATACs, or JoJo, right? It's like, you know, the, the idea that uh, you, you, I should be changing my approach um, because of this environment, to me, sounds silly because it implicitly assumes, one, the environment persists. We don't know that. If it's anomaly, the last thing you want to do is factor the anomaly in right, for the here and now, from a, from a rules-based perspective. But then also, it's one of those things where it's like, again, I go back to what does it mean for equities and treasuries to keep acting the same to both be the risky assets? It means the entire world is screwed because how could it possibly be that government debt is riskier than equities when everything's based on what uh, taxation, on, on government policies, on, on the reserve currency status, all this stuff? So it's a strange idea, but it's like, in many ways, the pitch for my funds, which are going through this horrible drawdown, is the relationship almost has to come back because if it doesn't, you have bigger things to worry about. I know that one can't predict the future very much, but do you think if yields come in or when yields come in, they'll come in very sharply? Or do you think it's going to be as persistent and extended as it has been on the other way, going the other way? 
It's an interesting question, and this kind of, you know, I, I know everyone's obviously on the secular inflation theme, and I, I totally get and sympathize with the viewpoints, but I will tell you, yeah, subjectively, I, I've always been more of a disinflation deflationist, meaning I, I do believe that debt is inherently deflationary. And so I, I penned this piece on Seeking Alpha back in, I think it was June of 2020. And I said the only way out is either hyperinflation or defaulting to the Fed. Because back then, I was seeing what everyone's now talking about. They're, they're going to overreact to COVID. There's going to be so much insane debt from already a very high starting point that there's no way out to resolve the extreme except with another extreme. Okay, so if you go with me that the only way out with this $30 trillion of government debt plus, never mind the unfunded $170 trillion of unfunded liabilities, and that's just in the U.S. alone, the only way out is hyperinflation defaulting to the Fed. Well, the problem is hyperinflation creates unstable societies, as we saw with Germany, right, in the lead up to Hitler's rise to power, right? So, And you're seeing it with emerging economies with these protests and the way everyone is basically just ranting on the government saying we can't literally eat. So because I, I don't think that's a viable answer, I think the only answer is that point about defaulting to the Fed, which is deflationary. So – I could be totally wrong on that. Again, I can't predict the future, but it just seems to me that the disinflation deflation narrative will overrule. Now, going back to how that relates to yields, that would make the argument that yields have to probably push a hell of a lot lower if I'm right in that thesis, right? Because any kind of default inherently will uh, cause a flight to safety into government debt because the government can just print dollars. So it could very well be, from a sequencing perspective, who knows you know, how that plays out in terms, of, in terms of speed. But in terms of endpoint, this is what's so amazing to me. Everyone keeps talking about higher rates, higher rates, higher rates. It's the end of the 40-year bond bull market. How can it be the end of the 40-year bond bull market if you still have a, 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 a forever bull market in government spending? Yes. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'm looking at on the inflation front is, although the evidence is a little bit sketchy, cross-sectionally, it basically suggests that when inflation is low, there are spikes in the inflation basket here and there, but they quickly mean reverse. Whereas when inflation crosses a threshold, it may be the case that the correlation in price action across uh, different assets is fairly high. And so I'm one thing that I'm curious about is to what degree the lagging inflation members of the basket will catch up to the other ones. I know lumber is a little bit different in this scenario, but um, that's something I'm keeping an eye on. Yeah, and, and it's also, you know, it's funny because this, um, the narrative is, it's all about, or largely because of supply chain disruptions, and that's going to be a multi-year issue. Okay, well, it's like, okay, a lot of Europe walks, they don't drive. Okay, so there are, you can argue you can't really do it in the middle of the US, I get that, right? But my point is, it's not like there aren't options they may not be comfortable options, but there are options where people can substitute for what is causing the high inflation. I promise you, you would not have supply chain disruptions and concerns over supply chains as elevated if people simply use Craigslist more or eBay more and bought used things instead of as a culture always wanting the next iPhone, the next new thing, right? which is delayed because most of that new stuff is produced in China while people are throwing things out that are perfectly functional uh, on, on the on the curb, right? So so there is this this sort of interesting dynamic of right. No, really, and it's and it's and that's not that's not me arguing to be a conservationist or like what I'm saying is that the argument that inflation is permanent assumes that the stuff which is already created can't be repurposed, and of course it can be. You try to sell a house, okay? So my mother's selling selling her, her house, right? Just, just very recently. Um, and the, the real estate broker said to her, you know, you know, and furniture is very hard to sell. And she's got beautiful furniture pieces, right, that, you know, cost thousands of dollars, you know, back in the day, you know, many, many, many years ago. And they're still in great shape. But it's very hard to sell the furniture. Well, but, but then there's supply chain disruptions over more cheaply made uh, couches. So once you start kind of pulling back and thinking through these dynamics, it's like, yeah, maybe this inflation is not as real as people think from a longer-term perspective if – you end up having a cultural shift in the way that people view things. Yeah, that's a fantastic comment. I I guess that there is a generational shift there too. Judging from some of my friends who are a fair bit younger than me, they tend to be much more 
focused on uh, not b- a barter economy, but an, a, an economy of exchange. And uh, long may that continue, in my humble opinion. It's, it's the only real solution, right? It's like, you know, I get it. You can't obviously apply that when it comes to, you know, uh, fuel you know, in terms of, you know, flying from one place to another. But at the margin, at the margin, there's no question that you could have less pain on inflation if people just said, let me buy this slightly dinged up table. Absolutely. In any case, uh, one question I did want to ask, I know that people shouldn't time investments such as yours, but how should people think of allocating to your various ETFs and funds? And is there a better time to allocate to them vis-a-vis a worse time over the market cycle? So it's an interesting question because when you follow a strategy that's based on an anomaly that's rules-based, you don't have an anchor like valuation to hold on to, to, to get a sense of when it might be a better or worse time. But if you take a step back, as a general rule of thumb, the best investment opportunities happen on dislocations. All right, now, I'm going to argue that this is unequivocally an enormous, enormous dislocation, again, because of the way treasuries acted this year in the sequence of high volatility for stocks. And if I knew, this is also nothing which is, I think, underappreciated in terms of sort of the nature of the business of running funds. So it takes about four or five months to launch an ETF, right, between the lawyers and back and forth and all this stuff. Okay, so that means I started the the process to launch my Roto ETF, which uses Lumber Gold as the signal, launched November 2020. I really started the process back in May, June of 2020. Same thing with JoJo, my bond gets the ETF, junk on, junk off, right? Uses utilities as the trigger. Okay, so same deal. Started, opened, uh, went live July 2021. I started the process first quarter of 2021. Had I known with hindsight or with perfect foresight that these risk on, risk off funds would be entering a year like this year, which is risk off, but risk off is acting worse than risk on, I wouldn't have launched the funds. It's like, why, why would I? Right? It's like, I, I, it costs money to launch the funds. You only get assets if you have performance. So why, if I knew that this was coming, why would I launch the funds? I'd launch them now, though, right? Because I just went through the dislocation. I just went through the anomaly. Now there's money to be made in risk off in treasuries because yields are higher. Now I'm not squeezing blood from stone with all-time low uh, interest rates when playing long duration. So from that perspective, and I'm biased in saying this, I think it's a phenomenal opportunity to consider the funds and if if – as, as strange as that sounds, given that especially Roro being down as much, much heavier than equities, because treasuries are down much heavier, and it's been whipsawed a couple of times in, in equities when trying to play it. But it's easier for me to say that uh, versus when somebody looks at a chart and just extrapolates. And they say, oh, it's not a proven strategy. And this is what's also maddening. They're all rules-based. They all have indices. Anybody can Google the indices that Roro and JoJo are tracking against and see that at least the theoretical backtest. There's a reason why I launched these funds. It wasn't just sort of a random guess. There's there's real historical, uh, uh, at least theoretical proof that these rotations, this opportunity set, substantially outperforms buy and hold over time. But the last nine, ten months, it's been brutal. And until I have the war story, like I did with my mutual fund in 2020 when it was up 72%, I get it. People are skeptical. For me, I'm sticking to it. Because uh, I, you know, I because I believe it, right? I mean, it's as simple as that. Well, there's there's kind of a sad side to our business, uh, the sobering side, which is basically it kind it kind of comes up in the Big Short, but in other places where Michael Gaia comes up with the idea first, he starts at an inopportune time. Someone who just is casually reading his white papers decides, oh, that's a good idea, and they don't have to bear the pain of the initial timing of the investment even if the of of the fund even if the fund is totally valid in its conception right exactly right and meanwhile uh, again it's it's, being ahead of your time can be damaging sometimes in finance no 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 no, and and i take a step further it's it's part of my my own part of being humbled many times in my life you know your micro effort matters does barely matters. It's the macro that that really determines success more than the micro effort. 
So here I am, you know, candidly busting my ass, right? I'm, I'm constantly communicating. I'm traveling. I'm trying to show the data. I'm being loud on Twitter because, unfortunately, that persona on Twitter, and it is a persona, has to be loud to get attention, right? Including the occasional F-bomb and all this stuff. But I'm, but I'm doing it, but I'm doing that because I have to, because this is my only way of trying to counter what is unequivocally, from a data perspective, an anomaly. So, what else am I supposed to do? And this is one of those those, those those challenging things in this domain of investing. There's no clear link between you working harder and having better results, at all, right? So, and that's hard, right? As an entrepreneur, that's a really hard thing as an entrepreneur because. It feels like you're running in place and you're running faster and nothing's changing. You're actually going backwards, right? I feel that every single day in this kind of environment, which is just brutal. But I also do believe that things will change at some point. Yeah, I've had similar experiences. I mean, I used to know this uh, jazz musician and he would say, I'm practicing today for things that will subconsciously appear in my playing in six months or a year. Right. And that's why we do research. I've found that whenever I, in over, over the years, whenever I try to implement research immediately, it never did as well as when I'd had time to absorb it, take my ego out of it a bit, and just let it run. And um, I know I know what you're saying. So you're probably always working hard. You're doing research. But the research you do today may not have any positive impact on today's performance. But it obviously just builds your power over the long term. Yeah, and hopefully it builds the right kind of shareholder base because if I'm – validated that risk on risk off dynamics return where treasuries go up in price down in yield and stocks go down, you know, in what is, let's call it a more classic risk off cycle. Well, you know, as much as I have haters and people that don't understand these concepts attacking me, I'm still building a bigger audience. And the work ethic is crucial because, you know, it's, 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 as you say, it's very different from say, if I were a plumber and I fix 10, drains in a day instead of two, I'll make more money. And that work is immediately profitable. Here, it's a much more subtle psychological thing where you just have to keep going, even if things aren't going your way in the short term. Yeah. And, and that's hard, especially because yeah, I wear my heart on my sleeve, right? It's like people don't separate the person out from the problem, right? So I'm the portfolio manager. They're going through, I'm going through hell as somebody just following rules because that's what the prospectus you know, says to do, right? So then I'll get personal attacks and it's like, I'm showing everybody, it's clear that this is not normal. And I don't know if it's a function of sort of the the post-COVID world where people simply view a chart and think that that's the way to analyze in markets as opposed to understanding the plumbing. Maybe it's a function of that. Maybe it's just a function of short-termism or Maybe it's just there's always going to be people that you know are are you know, armchair quarterbacks that are not the man in the arena, and that's okay, right? Because as I always say, going back to that Roosevelt quote, it's not the critic who counts. From my perspective, I, I believe that I'm going to be proven right in offering something that's different in a positive way, not like this year, obviously. But I need to go through this hellish period, and even if I, in the beginning of the year had the ability to override the approach. The problem there is that then I have to figure out when to go back to the approach that I just overrode. It's like, it's always, people always, I think, confuse this point that it's always, it's never just one decision. It's always two well, decisions. I, I, something. I had a friend, he ran a market neutral fund and uh, it was decent size. And he uh, had about 10 sectors in there. And whenever he had one big client. And whenever his big client said, why is performance not very good? And of course, it varied every time. The client would say, cut out this sector. That sector obviously isn't working well in a market neutral format. And before long, he was running a two sector uh, market neutral fund, something like that. And so you have to keep doing what you were doing because that also reconciles your performance with client expectations. You know, if you're doing something totally different, that's okay. But the clients need to be aware that the characteristics of the performance will differ. Yeah, and, and also the problem also with that line of thinking with clients and individual investors, obviously, is that the the presumption there is that you can you, you can create an, a no-lose strategy, right? So it's not working in the here and now, so just remove this or do that and do this and start working. Well, that's an unrealistic expectation. I mean, you're, you're never going to have something that's always working. If you do, it's made off, 
And yeah, and the the other point here is that I think all of your comments are extremely useful, even for people who decide to do it themselves and invest on their own, building their own models. They have to have some of the characteristics that you've been speaking about today. Yeah, they have to not chase the next hot product or hot dot. And and I mean, this is this is the look. The the I go back to the best way to avoid a drawdown is after one's already taken place, right? So in anything. Right, so it's it's just it's just again a way of saying buy low, sell high. Now, of course, we can debate if the drawdown's over or not, right? But you know, by definition, that every day that goes by, you're probably closer to the end of it. So that's not necessarily even an argument for my funds. That's an argument for any investment, right? But it's hard for people to understand that if they're constantly trying to remove the cause of what is uh, the cause of the drawdown you're going in now, as opposed to saying, well, let's. Let's wait till this drawdown is over and then actually double down on it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And maybe imitation is the highest form of flattery because uh, we've been faffing around in machine learning land with some of these indicators that you use, like lumber and so on. So it was, it was quite interesting to read your stuff, and I, I found it immensely valuable. Uh, with that, we've cut, gone through a lot of time. Uh, is there anything you want to add or... Any statement you want to make to the audience here? Well, it's like I keep going back to this point. It's like stop slinging arrows, stop hurling insults at people, which obviously is easier said than done. I mean, I get it. It's a very emotional time, but what's happening here is a big deal. This is not like other crises, okay, because, again, the entire system is predicated on bonds. And to think that that does not have ramifications on equities to me, is utterly insan- insanity. There's no other way to say it. Um, you're talking about buybacks no longer being a thing. You're talking about um, models that – I was just somebody sent me a tweet showing that this is – in any cycle, this is the fastest rates have ever risen in history in terms of Fed policy, never mind the long end, which should be separate really from the Fed. So, so, right? so, so think about what that means for corporations, companies, for those that are planning, they're doing NPV calculations – I mean, this is like a cataclysmic environment. And instead of people pointing fun at others who are going through hell, similar to mine, or are suffering, you know, you should not be betting or hoping that the end of the world takes place, right? It, it, it doesn't help anybody to uh, tear other people down who are struggling in an environment like this. You should call out false narratives. You should call out and separate uh, the person from the problem. But we all have to hope that this carnage in the bond market stops soon, right? Because if it doesn't, I, I don't see how the system can survive with higher interest expense, all this debt, and then possibly a recession. You're talking about an explosion of the deficit, an explosion of debt. I don't see how the system can survive that way. It's like that's why I keep using that term. It's like people are sleepwalking into a crash like this, and a crash that's more than just a crash in stocks, a crash in the system. Yeah, and in fact, stocks, while they're down significantly, haven't had the worst of it, as you point out. Um, not yet. Not yet. Okay, not yet. Very good. Uh, with that, I think I should take it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Michael. No, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Michael and Harry, for a fascinating conversation. Of course, many of the topics discussed today are close to my heart such as the role of treasuries as a safe haven, since I have been questioning the definition of safe assets for quite a while on the podcast. But the crux of the conversation, namely, is it possible to find real indicators that work, is fascinating, and then, of course, to follow them on a rules-based basis. And Michael's choice of lumber instead of copper was quite interesting, but well-argued. Now, Michael made many references to the trend-following world, such as the fact that you need to have periods where your indicator doesn't work for it to work in the long run, and I think that's very true. But I'm not so sure I fully understood the argument of trend-following being a short volatility strategy, so maybe we need to flesh that out next time he's on the podcast. Make sure you go and follow Michael's and Harry's work, because as you can tell from today's conversation, there are many exciting facets to learn from those who have been in the trenches for many years, and we really look forward to exploring many more of them as our series continue. From Harry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. 
If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.